Well, hello, everybody. Um, for the first time in my career, I'm giving a lecture with two computers here. So if I shuffle from one to the other a little bit, you'll know what's going on. My notes are here, and that's there. So we'll see how we go. I also have, along with the two computers, two hats. I will explain this in a moment or two. But first of all, I should just tell you a little bit about myself to explain where I'm coming from. First of all, uh, Ryan is correct. I'm a lecturer in ancient history at Macquarie University. I do hope you'll forgive me that. Uh, if you do, I'll forgive you for coming here. Um, the second thing is a technicality. I'm actually a senior lecturer. And uh, if you're a senior lecturer in ancient history, I think it means you must be extremely old. But I'm defying this. I've only just hit 50. Um, and the first thing I want to tell you about is what I am and am not going to say. First of all, for the purposes of this lecture, I will be wearing, metaphorically as well as literally, two hats. This is my normal hat, which I wear because I have Anglo-Celtic skin that gets sunburnt very easily. This is the hat I use to symbolise, this is me, Chris Forbes, speaking here. Uh, me speaking personally, if you like. Then there's the hat modelled on the one that Indiana Jones' father wore in the last Indiana Jones movie. <laughs> and this is the one that I wear to inform you that I'm now speaking as a professional historian and attempting to sound like, you know, him. <laughs> However, now I don't know if I'm actually going to wear these literally at any point of the lecture, but I do want you to know that I'm going to be wearing two hats. For most of the lecture, I'm going to be speaking as a professional historian, speaking specifically about historical argument, which does not require any Christian commitment. It is simply argument from evidence, argument from sources, and that's the way it'll be. It ought to be arguments that would be equally acceptable on principle to a Christian, an agnostic, an atheist, anything. So most of the time, I'm going to be wearing my historian's hat, and I'll attempt not to sound like Sean Connery at the same time, because I'm actually not very good at it. Um, however, there will be moments when I'll take off my historian's hat and say something purely personal as me, Chris Forbes, who is a Christian. Now, I say this because I am both a committed ancient historian and a committed Christian. You need to know which time I am speaking as which. It seems only fair because when I start speaking purely personally, you're allowed to put large red question marks in the margin of your notes. So, wearing two hats. What I am not going to do is try to prove the Bible, quote, unquote. And the reason I'm not going to try to do that is it's too big an ask. The Bible is many different documents written over roughly a thousand years by people in widely different social and historical contexts. It is many things. I'm going to be focusing on particular case studies drawn overwhelmingly from the Gospels and particularly I'm going to be focusing on the question of Jesus and history. I'm going to be focusing on the question, what can a historian confidently say about Jesus without any prior Christian commitment, simply from critical historical investigation? Now, while I'm wearing that hat, I may well say some things that some of you as Christians will be quite uncomfortable with. I'm trying to tell you the sorts of arguments that historians use when they are not 
taking Christian commitment into account. These arguments are arguments which, in principle, ought to be plausible on their own account without any Christian presuppositions. Sometimes, when I put my Christian hat back on, I'll have things to say about those as well. But my aim is really to show you the way that historians in general approach the Gospels. Now, the first point to make here is that historians are pretty well convinced, and this is overwhelming consensus, that the Gospels that we have were written somewhere between 60 and 80, maybe at the latest 90 AD, and that they were based on a combination of oral and written sources. That is to say that in the earlier stages of the Jesus movement, while Jesus himself was still around, it is unlikely that anybody was writing very much that he said down because it was unlikely that very many people who followed him could. The great majority of the population were illiterate. Not everybody, but certainly very few would have been literate enough to write a book. Functional literacy, you know, reading government notices and filling in forms, would be reasonably common. But literary literacy, that's another thing. So from the early stages, the stories about Jesus and Jesus' own sayings were probably passed on by word of mouth. Now, in a culture that is predominantly illiterate, that's not bad. Because people who live in a non-literate culture learn to use their memories far more effectively. Look at me. I am absolutely hopeless. I can no longer write a lecture with just pen and paper. I require a word processor that does outlining before I'm effective writing a lecture. Tell me to compose a lecture in my head and then give it without notes of any kind. I'm dead. People who live in a culture that doesn't have ready and easy access to pen and paper, let alone computers and word processors with outlining, just plain depend on their memories for a great deal more than we do. Shopping lists, you keep them in your head. Ancient peoples were good at that. They had to be. And the Gospels were primarily oral, and then over time, and we cannot track the whole of this process in detail, bits and pieces of the tradition about Jesus began to be written down until we get to the Gospels we have, probably written down between 60 and 85 or 90 AD. So there's a crossover. There's oral, there's oral and written, and then there's predominantly written, though oral stories about Jesus continued to be told by tradition being passed down for more than a 100 years, long after the Gospels became widely available. Now, what do historians do with the Gospels to try and reach back behind what the Gospel writers wrote to get to the original stories about Jesus and to ask to what extent have those stories been garbled in transmission in that period of oral transmission. The answer is they do a careful cross-comparison primarily of Matthew, Mark and Luke because those are so comparable. John's whole style is so very different that it's hard to compare him meaningfully. And they do a cross-comparison of these three partially independent sources in order to try to see, by extrapolation, what was going on before the Gospels were written. That's the general historical approach to the Gospels, to try and track the tradition back behind the Gospels themselves to see what was going on. Now, it's about an 85% consensus that Mark wrote first, that both Matthew and Luke used Mark 
but also used other things and also had material that was unique. So we've got Markan material. We've got Markan material that either Matthew or Luke has used. We've got Matthew's own material that no one else seems to know, Luke's own material that no one else seems to know, and then an odd and puzzling little cluster of material that Matthew and Luke have both got, but Mark hasn't. Now, the label for that in scholarship is the capital letter Q. Quelle in German, it means source. Q is a pronumeral. There's no copy of it anywhere, not even in the Vatican Library. Don't believe everything you read in the Da Vinci Code, will you? Just checking. That's another talk for another day. Um, In the Da Vinci Code, we're told that there is a copy in the Vatican Library and it's said to be in Jesus' own handwriting. Yeah, right. (coughs) What scholars then do is take the material that they have in the Gospels and subject it to a number of critical criteria which are called criteria of authenticity. They are rules of thumb, not precise statistical rules, but rules of thumb by which you attempt to judge how likely it is that a particular saying or a particular story can be proven to go back to Jesus himself rather than being something that the early church either modified or made up and fathered back on Jesus. That's the way historians approach it. Now, the criteria of authenticity start with, number one, multiple independent attestation. Now, what this means is that if a story or saying of Jesus crops up, not just in Mark, but independently in some of the other Gospels as well, whether it be only in Matthew, only in Luke, or in that shadowy Q material that Matthew and Luke have in common, if a story or saying crops up in several of those strands, if you like, of tradition, then it's more likely to be historically real. It's very simple and common sense. The more versions of the story were going round, the more likely it is to go back a long way. You would not put much historical weight on a story that was only in one gospel compared to a story that was not just in all three gospels but was independently told by the three, not just copied from Mark. That's multiple independent attestation. Secondly, it's always a plus sign on a saying or story about Jesus that it has a clear context in the ministry of Jesus which was not duplicated later. For example, there's the well-known story about Jesus getting out of being quizzed by some Pharisees and Sadducees and it says in the Gospels, no, sorry, it says in the Gospel of Mark, and the Pharisees and the Herodians went away and plotted what to do to him. What's a Herodian? <laughs> no, precisely. And most of the audience of the Gospels didn't know either, which is why Mark put it in, but Matthew and Luke left it out, because nobody in their audiences knew what a Herodian was, so it wasn't worth talking about. Pharisees, are ah, we'd all heard about them. So a Herodian, that is to say a political supporter of Herod the Tetrarch of Galilee is something in the context of the ministry in Jesus which was not duplicated later, say, after Herod's death. Anything that talks about Herodians is unlikely to have been invented later. It's not impossible, of course. It's just less likely. Things like that. Third criterion, dissimilarity from the view of the early churches. 
What I mean by this is that if there is something that the early church didn't say very much, then they almost certainly didn't invent it. Cute. It goes like this. The most common title used for Jesus in the Gospels by Jesus is Son of Man. But except on the lips of Jesus in the Gospels, the phrase Son of Man only occurs one more time in the entire New Testament. That's when Stephen, in Acts chapter 7, about to die of stoning, says, I can see the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. What's the point? The point is that the early church didn't really use this title for Jesus very much. Messiah, Saviour, Son of God, yes, they used those, but Son of Man they barely used at all, which makes it overwhelmingly unlikely that they made it up. It wasn't one of theirs. It was one that they remembered as the way Jesus spoke, but they didn't use it of him themselves. Dissimilarity is a plus sign for historical usability. The opposite tack, of course, is similarity to Jewish interests circa 30 AD. If things Jesus is saying fit into the agendas that we know of about Judaism from this period for other sources, then that's useful. It means it's more likely that this is historically accurate material than if it seems to be all about the agendas of the church a generation or two later. Finally, there's what's nicknamed the criterion of embarrassment. Now, these are stories in the Gospels where you just know that no early Christian made it up because they wouldn't have. It's a problem to them. The classic example of this is the saying where Jesus says, no one knows the day or the hour when the Son of Man comes, not even the Son, but only the Father. Now, I'd be willing to bet a great deal that Jesus really said that, because no early Christian is going to make up a saying in which Jesus doesn't know something as important as the time of the end of the world. No one's going to invent that. It's too much of an embarrassment. They will only pass on that sort of a story if they are fully confident that he really said it and they're stuck with it. That's the criterion of embarrassment. There are other forms of it as well. Now, what I'm going to do is I'm going to use these criteria and one or two other things and I'm going to apply them to a number of case studies of stories about Jesus in the Gospels, and I'm going to argue that we have seven points. Sorry, I know it's not three, but this isn't a sermon. Um, we have seven points, at least seven points, that we can say about Jesus with a great deal of historical certainty. The first is that Jesus believed in the dawning intervention of God in history. Not just that God would at some point intervene, but that his intervention was actually dawning now. The biblical phrase for this is the coming of the kingdom of God, and it is multiply attested in every strand of the gospel tradition. It's in Mark, it's in Q, it's in Matthew and Luke's special material, it's everywhere. Everyone knew that Jesus was talking about the coming of the kingdom of God, and that phrase was one that had deep roots in Old Testament literature. It was about the day when God would come to set things right for the people of Israel and, predictably, set things wrong for quite a number of other people who'd been giving Israel a hard time. That Jesus was talking about the coming of the kingdom of God is multiply attested. Furthermore, it's not just multiply attested in the strands of the tradition. 
It's multiply attested in forms of tradition. It's in parables. The kingdom of God is like. It's in sayings like the kingdom of God is among you that are not parables. It's in miracle stories. If I, by the finger of God, cast out Satan, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. So in every way, material about the dawning intervention of God in history is so embedded in the gospel tradition that it is simply not historically credible to say they made it up later. Jesus was talking about this stuff. Case study number two. Jesus believed himself to be his God's ultimate messenger to the people of Israel. Now you'll notice that I'm carefully avoiding standard Christian jargon like Messiah, Son of God, that sort of thing, and putting things broadly and generally because I don't want to impose later theological categories. Jesus believed himself to be at least God's ultimate messenger to the people of Israel. Now there was one saying I mentioned a minute or two ago where Jesus said, if I by the finger, Matthew, or the spirit, Luke, of God, cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. Jesus is saying not only that the kingdom of God is coming, but that his action inaugurates it. He's bringing it in. That categorizes him as an ultimate messenger of God. Deeply embedded in the gospel traditions is the fact that Jesus chose 12 disciples as the inner core of his movement. And it doesn't take much imagination to realize that those 12 were being conceived of as the 12 new leaders of the 12 new tribes of Israel that Jesus' movement would form. This was the restoration of Israel from the good old days before they had bad kings, and particularly Herodian kings, and Jesus' movement would restore the 12 tribes, and these were the 12 leaders. Now, if Jesus' 12 closest friends were the 12 leaders, who was he who was leading them? doesn't have to say a word. The silence speaks volumes. He is clearly making a claim to be the leader of the leaders, an ultimate leader of God's purposes. The fact that Pilate had the phrase, this is the king of the Jews, inscribed above Jesus' head when he was crucified, is widely agreed by historians to be pretty well irrefutable. The fact that he was charged with being a messianic pretender, a revolutionary king, is not something an early Christian would have made up for fun. It discredited Jesus utterly. Not only was he a revolutionary leader, he was a failed one one the Romans caught and killed. Not something you're likely to be proud of. But the point is, if Jesus did not in some sense make such a claim, it would have been very easy for him to say to Pilate, me? No! Not guilty, Your Honour. I never claimed that. I'm not about that. The fact that Pilate did it, I think historically must mean that from Pilate's point of view, Implicitly, that is what Jesus was claiming. Whether Pilate misunderstood it as power politics is a separate issue. But it is evidence that Jesus believed himself to be God's coming king in some sense. Finally, there are sayings in the gospel tradition that say John the Baptist is the greatest prophet 
But, and then Jesus clearly puts himself ahead of John the Baptist. Okay, so if John the, great, John the Baptist is the greatest prophet, who's Jesus? More than that. Jesus in several passages in the Gospel says things that imply that he thinks the temple is replaceable, but he is not. More important than John the Baptist, more important than the temple. And finally, Jesus gives himself the authority, you have heard it said, but I say to you, to give definitive interpretations of the law or even to modify the law. The law of Moses, the constitutional framework of the Jewish people. Jesus claims the right to interpret and indeed modify it. All of that adds up to an overwhelming historical case that Jesus believed himself to be his God's ultimate messenger to Israel. Now notice, I haven't said a word about whether he was right. I'm saying that the historical evidence suggests that he made the claim, not just that his followers made the claim afterwards. This stuff seems to go back to him on multiple criteria. Third case study. Jesus believed himself and was believed to do miracles. Can we just take the historian's hat as read for a moment? Um, I'm not going into the very difficult and vexed question of whether miracles can happen at all or whether Jesus could do them. I'm simply saying that a historian can be fully confident that Jesus thought he did miracles and so did his audience. What really happened may or may not be recoverable. As far as I can tell, Current Affair didn't have a camera crew on the site and even if they did, I wouldn't trust them. But it is very clear that Jesus believed himself to be an exorcist and miracle worker and it isn't just clear that he believed it, it is clear that other people believed it too. Both his followers and his enemies thought he was a miracle worker. We get this because later rabbinic tradition remembers Jesus as a wizard who had learnt magic in Egypt, you know, when his parents ran away from King Herod and he went to Egypt. He learnt some things there. Egyptian wizardry was famous. I mean, remember Moses having to get rid of all the pharaoh's wizards and that sort of thing? Um, Later rabbinic tradition said Jesus was a sorcerer who led Israel astray. In other words, they didn't say he was a fraud. They said he was a wizard. Implies miracle worker. Likewise, Greco-Roman authors remembered Jesus as a wonder worker. The 3rd century AD pagan writer Celsus, in his criticism of Christianity, says precisely the same thing. Ah, he did miracles. That just proves he was a wizard, probably learned it in Egypt. Jesus' friends, Jesus' enemies, everyone agreed he did miracles. For them, the only question was, how? Not only that, but the miracle tradition in the Gospels is deeply embedded It's in Mark, it's in the Matthew and Luke material we call Q, it's in Matthew's own material, it's in Luke's own material, it's in John as well. It's everywhere. If you tried to take a pair of scissors and cut the miraculous aspect out of the Gospels, all you end up with is a pile of tatters. It can't be done. Historically, it is not possible to isolate out the miraculous. The earliest accounts that ever were about Jesus already presumed he was miraculous. Fourth, Jesus preached God's undeserved forgiveness 
and offer of reconciliation to people. Now, this is multiply attested. Again, it's all through the gospel traditions. And it also has strong support from the criterion of embarrassment because Jesus offered forgiveness and reconciliation to prostitutes and corrupt public servants. Now, prostitutes, of course, nowadays are quite fashionable and are called sex workers, which is so much nicer than whore. Um, Isn't it wonderful? We now have a sex industry, and for some reason that's thought to be better. I worry about this sort of thing. I wonder if you do. But the point is, Jesus was known in the gospel tradition for associating with prostitutes, but not in the bedroom. Now, Good Jews did not associate with prostitutes. Not only was it unclean and impure, it was immoral. But Jesus did. How likely is it that the early Christians are going to make up stories about Jesus associating with prostitutes? Ditto corrupt public servants, the tax collectors, the publicani. Latin term, it does not mean owner of a pub. Now, there's something I'm going to say now that I want you to promise me you will not take out of this room. Particularly, I don't want you to tell Peter Costello. Okay? All agreed we will not tell Peter Costello? Thank you. Right. The Romans privatised the tax system. (laughs) It's true. They contracted out to private companies to collect the taxes. The taxes were then subcontracted to local people. At every stage of the process, the profit was creamed off. You weren't just paying your taxes. You were paying multiple levels of corruption on top of that. And the local tax collectors, the publicani, Jesus offered forgiveness. Not only were they ceremonially impure because they went everywhere collecting taxes, including the most impure places, they were collaborators with the Romans against their own people. And Jesus offered them forgiveness and reconciliation. Not only is this multiply attested, it clearly fits the criterion of embarrassment. Nobody likes tax collectors. And pointing out that Jesus associated with them is only useful if you can't avoid it and then have to make a point about it. Case study number five. Jesus was a critic of the religious establishment of his own day and he expected to be killed as a result. Celsus, the Greco-Roman critic I mentioned earlier, commented, well, that's hardly surprising. You don't have to be a prophet. Every crook knows he'll come to a bad end. Celsus didn't like the Christians. Matthew 27 and Luke 13 both tell the story of Jesus describing Jerusalem as Jerusalem that stones the prophets as he approached Jerusalem on his last journey there. Clearly, he was expecting trouble. But it seems to me that on the criterion of embarrassment, it is most unlikely that any early Christian invented that saying. Why? Because Jesus wasn't stoned, that's why, and they all knew it. Jesus was Yeah, crucified, that's right. So there'd be no point in making up a story where Jesus predicted his own death and got it wrong. You would only report such a story if you knew he really said it. And you were stuck with it, even if it was mildly embarrassing. I don't think it's terribly embarrassing, but it's certainly not the kind of story you would make up to prove a point. 
because there's a level of discomfort about using it as a prediction of Jesus' death. That's the criterion of embarrassment. There is also, and this is my major case study, the so-called parable of the tenant farmers, parable of the tenants. Now, here we have it in Matthew, Mark and Luke. It's a story many of you will know quite well. Man planted a vineyard. Luke says, yes, man planted a vineyard. Matthew says it was a landowner. Well, that's reasonable. Put a wall around it, yes. Dug a wine press where well, you have to. Oh, Luke leaves out that detail because it's not relevant. Rented the vineyard out to farmers, yes. That's all clear in all three accounts. The story's there. It's clear that we have here one story being retold in slightly differing versions. Now, what happens is fairly well known. The owner sends people to collect his share of the crop. Absentee landlord exploiting the labourers. Widespread phenomenon in Galilee and Judea. Sometimes they collected as much as 75% of the crop and the farmers only got 25. Conditions were tough on the land. However, the tenants seized the servants, beat them, sent them away empty-handed, various details in various accounts. The point is, they weren't having any. Then all three accounts show us, and, and by the way, I'm not claiming these are three independent accounts. I think both Luke and Matthew are getting it from Mark, just stylistically rewriting it a little bit. In all three accounts, he then says, I'll send my son, they'll respect him. Now, this isn't dim. The son is his father's legal representative. He is expecting them to be cowed into submission by this. But the tenants said, this is the heir, Let's kill him and the inheritance will be ours. Now, I take it that this can be roughly paraphrased as the old man can't live forever. If we kill the heir, then we'll be left in possession and possession is nine-tenths of the law. Hopeful, I suppose. Now, there's a crucial difference between Matthew, Mark and Luke, which is not often noticed, but I'll come back to it. Then the story ends with Jesus saying, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing. Slightly different in Luke, but clearly the same saying. Now, question number two is, how is the stone story related to the tenant's story? It's not obvious. Now, let's go back. Notice that Mark said, when they killed the son, hey, obviously Jesus, right? Okay. Jesus telling the parable is clearly saying something about what he expects. They took him and killed him and threw him out of the vineyard, says Mark. Now, intriguingly, both Matthew and Luke alter that in one crucial way. Can you see it? Mark says they killed him and then threw him out. Both Matthew and Luke say they threw him out and then killed him. Now, if only one of them said it like that, you'd say, oh, well, who cares? But when they both say it like that, when they both seem to have read Mark and both independently changed it to something else, you have to ask why. Now, my bet, and this would be a widespread view, is that they changed Mark because they took this parable as a prediction of Jesus' death. And symbolically, Jesus had been thrown out of the vineyard, that is to say the Lord's vineyard, that is to say Jerusalem, and killed outside the city. 
But Mark doesn't quite say it. He says he was killed and then thrown out. No, no, let's just modify this very slightly and the fact that it's a prophecy about Jesus will be so much clearer. He was thrown out and then killed. That makes the prophecy so much more precise. And what's my point? Well, my point is very simple. Mark didn't. Mark told the story in a way that did not predict the death of Jesus. Mark told the story for its own sake. Mark's version has considerable historical credibility. Both Matthew and Luke have modified it to some extent to make it a prophecy of the death of Jesus, the Son. But Mark's account would appear to be original. So there is evidence that Jesus saw himself as a critic of the religious establishment, the farmers who owned the vineyard of God, and expected, like the son, to be killed. And Mark's version has on its side the criterion of embarrassment. But there is also background in this passage that you will not know if you only read English. Indeed, you will not know if you only read Greek. There is background in this passage that is only obvious if you know Aramaic, which I don't. I'm dependent on the experts for this. Why is it that after telling the story about the tenants and the son, there is a story about the stone? How are these connected? And the answer is there is in Aramaic a pun here. Because in Aramaic, the son is ben, and a stone is eben. And Jesus says they reject the ben, they reject the eben. The son and the stone are a pun. Jesus is saying they reject me as the son and as the stone that the builders rejected and implied in that pun is a theology of messiahship because in the Psalms where this phrase the stone that the builders rejected was originally used, rabbis read a prophecy of the messiah for was not David the king who had originally been rejected as king over Israel but who became the foundation stone of the kingdom of Israel? The sun and the stone together are messianic, but only in Aramaic. Now, this cannot be made up by the later Greek-speaking church because it doesn't work in Greek. It must go back to the Aramaic-speaking church. And on the criterion of embarrassment, plus the Aramaic background, it seems overwhelmingly likely that we have here genuine Jesus material which a historian must deal with. Six, Jesus believed his death would be a sacrifice for sins. In Mark 10.25, he talks about his life being a ransom for many. Judean content helps us to locate this saying. Jews widely believed that death paid for sins in general. The death of a sacrificial animal paid for the sins of the sacrifices. If a condemned criminal said, as he was to be executed, let my death atone for my sins, the rabbi said, it does. Not only that, but the death of a righteous man who did not deserve to die had greater effects. If a martyr died resisting the enemies of the people of Israel, then his sins were forgiven. That was widely believed. 
if a righteous man died, then the sins of his family might well be forgiven as well. And if the high priest were to die in office, some of the rabbis believed the sins of the whole people of Israel would be forgiven. Death of the righteous paid for sin. If Jesus believed himself to be God's ultimate messenger, it would be astonishing if he did not think his death would be a sacrifice for sins. Historically, it makes perfectly reasonable sense. There is no need to argue that is simply something the later Christians made up. Finally, the same idea that Jesus' death was in some sense a sacrifice is deeply embedded in the Lord's Supper narratives Take, this is my body given for you, this is my blood. Body and blood together means body and blood have been separated, means death, means sacrifice. And that is not only in Matthew, Mark and Luke, it's also in Paul, probably 20 years before the Gospels were written, that's independent attestation. So it is pretty clear then that Jesus believed that his death would be, in some sense, perhaps not a developed later Christian theology, but in some sense, a sacrifice for sin. Finally, case study number seven. Jesus believed that his own mission was to the people of Israel only, but that a later stage would see his work carried to the wider world. Now, this is something a lot of us are uncomfortable with, but it's important to notice that in Matthew and in Luke, Jesus talks about the lost sheep of the house of Israel, and says things like, I was only sent to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. And that's why he won't deal with Gentiles. And when he sends out his disciples on their own missionary tour, he says to them, do not go to any town of the Gentiles or the Samaritans. Just go to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. You may not have time for anything else before the Son of Man comes. Jesus clearly thought that he was there to do something for the people of Israel to the exclusion of others. But there is an intriguing point in the healing of the centurion servant, one of only two times in Matthew, Mark and Luke where Jesus deals directly with Gentiles. The Syrophoenician woman and the centurion are the only Gentiles Jesus deals directly with. At the end of Matthew's version of the story, Matthew says, having said, truly I say to you, not even in Israel have I found such faith. Next sentence, I tell you, many will come from east and west and sit at table with Abraham, Isaac and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven, while the sons of the kingdom will be thrown into the outer darkness. Now Luke has this saying, or one so close that it's got to be the same thing, but he has not attached it to the story of the centurion servant. He's got it off on its own, In another context, but men will come from east and west and from north and south and sit at table in the kingdom of God. Clearly, Jesus is saying there will be a later stage where outsiders will come in. I'm only dealing with the house of Israel, but later we'll go further or rather they'll come to us. Now, why am I confident that this is actually what Jesus said and not just something fathered on him later? Answer because it didn't happen. If you're going to make up prophecies, you ought to get them right. What happened was not that the Gentiles came into Judea to worship the God of Israel the way quite a number of Old Testament prophets suggested, but the message of the Messiah went out 
to the nations. This verse points in the wrong direction. Gentiles come in. Whereas what happened was Jewish missionaries went out. In other words, I'm saying there is no way that Christians in the second or third generation would make up that saying because it wouldn't make sense to them. Their whole mission was about Jews going out to Gentiles, not Gentiles coming in to Israel. This saying makes sense in the context of 30s AD Judaism, not 60s AD Christianity. It is therefore overwhelmingly likely that 60s AD Christianity did not make it up. It is good historical material for Jesus. So Jesus believed his own mission was to the people of Israel, but on the criterion of embarrassment, we can argue it's very likely that he thought his work would be carried on to a wider world. So we have the following points, and there could be a lot more. It's just that I'm about to run out of time. But these points about Jesus would appear to be historically overwhelmingly likely, highly credible. He believed that God was about to intervene in history. He believed that he himself was God's final messenger. He believed himself and was believed to be a miracle worker. He taught God's offer of forgiveness to all kinds of people who clearly did not deserve it. He was a critic of the religious establishment. He thought his death would be a sacrifice. And he thought that his own work was for Israel, but there would be a later stage. Now, I ask you to just keep a note of those points and note three things. Number one, these conclusions do not require you to be a Christian. These conclusions are based on reasonable lines of historical argument quite apart for any belief in the Gospels as authoritative. Indeed, as you've noticed... In quite a number of cases, I presumed in the argument that the Gospels are not authoritative, but can be and indeed must be critically examined. Number two, these conclusions do not force you to become a Christian. You can say, yes, that's all true, but Jesus, poor mug, was simply deluded and it's tragic, but hey, lots of it happened. But I would ask you to note, most importantly, that these historical conclusions are consistent with Christian belief. Those seven points are things we believe about Jesus. I am now swapping hats. This is a picture of a Jesus we recognise. This is a picture of a Jesus who is familiar to us. And it would appear that this is based on good, sound historical evidence and does not require simply a leap of faith. Now, whichever hat I'm wearing, if you want to follow this up a little bit further on your handout, there is some other references you can read, good introductory books that deal with these kinds of issues. Now juggling my two hats, what I want to finish on is this. You've heard me talking as a critical historian. You've heard me talking as a Christian person. I'm committed to both. As an historian, I believe that the Jesus of the Gospels is broadly historically credible. And if we were doing another talk, we might well then talk about the big one, which is the claim that he rose from the dead. Because once again... As a professional historian, I think that one's 
pretty hard to dodge. But that is another talk for another time. So, are there any questions about any of that? Yes, sir. I was just wondering, um, in a lot of the things you quoted, the discrepancies, um, especially to do with quotes on what Jesus actually said, yep. some of the accounts are slightly different. Yes. Obviously, Jesus couldn't have said them, possibly Jesus couldn't have said them both. So, does that suggest that the Bible has errors in places? What it suggests to me is one of two things and probably both. It suggests to me that Jesus probably did say things more than once, um, basically because he must have, because he had three or four years of talking to do and there's just not enough in the Gospels to keep him going for three or four years. He must have reused his material and indeed any good speaker does reuse their main points in many different contexts, saying them slightly differently. But in my view, that only explains some cases. What explains other cases more clearly is simply different memory versions of the same events being passed down. I think it's historically a bit simplistic to say errors. If you want to be absolutely literalistic, yes. But what we have here is semi-independent reports. And as a historian, I would like to have semi-independent reports. I'd like to have totally independent reports more. But semi-independent reports are better than material that is so perfect that it looks like a put-up job. Somebody else? Yes? Yeah, I was wondering how you came up with the 60 AD for the first gospel. Um, the answer is we don't really know, but Paul's letters show no real sign that he knows about gospels having been written. So it's unlikely that they had been during his time because, you know, he'd likely have known, besides which Luke was one of his mates, um, which shows that at least Luke hadn't written his yet. Um, None of the Gospels seem to me to show clear and irrefutable evidence that they were written after the destruction of Jerusalem by the Romans in 70 AD. So I think it's quite likely that Mark was written before that and it is possible, though probably not provable, that Matthew and Luke were written before that as well. Before 70, or perhaps only shortly after 70, but not everyone is comfortable with that conclusion. Some people think, no, more likely getting on into the 80s. It is not an argument that is easy to pin down. Anybody else? We still have time for one or two, I think. Yes? Um, you talked about um, the gospel as Only quite a lot later, unfortunately. Uh, One Jewish author, Josephus, writing in the 80s or 90s, has a brief mention of Jesus. It may well have been doctored by Christian scribes centuries down the track. It seems very likely that it said something like, this man claimed to be the Messiah. But at least quite a number of the manuscripts say this man was the Messiah, and I'm willing to bet that that's because a Christian monk read this man claimed to be the Messiah. Oh, no, 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 he was the Messiah. But it seems entirely historically credible that Josephus thought he claimed to be. But that's in the 80s and 90s. But Josephus does tell us that Jesus still has followers even after his death in the 80s or 90s. Josephus knows about them. Likewise, in the early 2nd century, the Roman historian Tacitus briefly mentions 
But those pesky Christians who Nero persecuted to the point where people began to feel sorry for them, boy, was that a tactical error, um, went back to the founder of the name. In other words, I think he thinks Christ is Jesus' name rather than his title, who was executed under Pontius Pilate. Okay, 26 to 36 AD, nice historical linkage there. But frankly, that's about it. There's not much else. That's why it's important that we decide how historically valuable the Gospels are, how credible their evidence is. Yes? The last one about this is a familiar Jesus. All I'm really saying is if we take this minimalist historical portrait it does actually say quite a lot of things Christians have been saying for a long time. But I think in terms of response that I ought to let you say a word or two as we clear away up the front here for the next lecture. Rob Ryan. Uh, 